Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 190, nailed it. I'm Dr. Brett Weinstein, you are Dr. Heather Hying, and we are raring to go here on a cloudy, drizzly Wednesday in the beginning of September. Indeed, yep, still summer, but it doesn't totally feel like it right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll grant you that. Yeah. Uh, please come join us at Rumble and Locals. We got lots going on at our Locals channel uh, with Watch Party going on right now for those of you tuning in live. And we're releasing guest episodes there a day early. We're doing our private Q&A there. Uh, lots going on there. So please subscribe on Rumble for free and join us at Locals. Uh, we truly appreciate it. And there's lots to lots to do there. Uh, we are going to do a Q&A today after the main live streams. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And as always, we have sponsors uh, who help make this happen, and we are very appreciative of them. Uh, our three sponsors this week are Soul, Mudwater, and Biome. And without further ado, I never know what ado is, but without any more of it, but there's are, a lot of it. But, but about not nothing right now, for the most part. Yeah, not not going into the ado now. We are just going to go into the ads. All right, fair yeah. enough. Our first sponsor this week is Soul. Soul Footbeds the original custom moldable insoles providing affordable pain relief since 2001. Soul Footbeds include a signature supportive arch that is great for any arch height. If you have low arches or flat feet, you simply heat mold them in your oven at home to ensure a comfortable level of support. Anecdotally, I will say that Soul Footbeds have been a game changer for me. I was born with weird feet. Weird enough that I had reconstructive surgery on both of them when I was 13, which put me in a wheelchair for months and truly, really ridiculously ugly orthopedic shoes for you. There was no reason for them to be that ugly. There wasn't. That surgery was wildly successful. S small you didn't market. Know me then. No, I didn't know you. And no. I, I don't and know I didn't. I have never really cared about shoes, but even I could tell these were really ugly shoes. They, they were bad. Yeah. yeah. And uncomfortable. Um, that surgery was wildly successful, however, and I was playing varsity sports within a couple of years of having it, but it's been a while since I was 13 and my arches are beginning to flatten and my feet hurt a lot more than they used to. Wearing shoes with sole footbeds in them is helping tremendously. I have sole footbeds in lots of my shoes now, in my extra tough boots, my hiking boots, and even in a nice pair of flats that you might go to a nice restaurant in. They have multiple styles for different kinds of activity. If you have any foot issues at all, you should seriously try these footbeds. Soul footbeds are easily customizable using your oven at home, or you can skip that step and they'll mold to your feet over a few days. You get the benefits of personalized support at a small fraction of the price of doctor-prescribed orthotics, and they're made from recycled cork. Soul footbeds also reduce pain from plantar fasciitis and shin splints. They promote neutral alignment and good posture, and are particularly effective at preventing fatigue when standing or walking for long hours on hard surfaces, which a lot of people have to do. Two-thirds of people who try sole footbeds come back for a second pair, and many have trusted sole to keep their feet energized and pain-free for more than 20 years. If you've ever wondered whether orthotics could add to your comfort or athletic performance, this is your best chance yet to find out why 17 million satisfied souls already know what they know. If, uh, I already read that part. Soul is giving away a thousand pairs of footbeds to first-time customers. Simply go to yoursoul.com slash darkhorse or enter the code darkhorse at checkout to get a pair of footbeds at only the cost of shipping. After the thousand free pairs are claimed, new customers will still get 50% off their footbeds. To claim a free footbed, go to your soul, that's Y-O-U-R-S-O-L-E dot com slash darkhorse or enter the code darkhorse at checkout. This offer ends October 31st. Try soul footbeds today and find out how good your feet can feel. Yeah, they're actually uh, kind of addictive, as you know. You, first, first time you put your foot on them, what it's is like, that? whoa. And then it's yeah. like, oh, I see why that, that ridge is there. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, they're, they're, they're truly different and truly remarkable. Um, try them. 
Our second sponsor this week is Mudwater, which makes truly delicious products. Mudwater makes a fantastic drink. It's spicy and delicious and chock full of adaptogenic mushrooms and Ayurvedic herbs. I think that's pronounced Ayurvedic, not Ayurvedic, but whatever, whatever floats your herbal boat. I think I've been mispronouncing it. Oh, no, I think you had it right. With one-seventh the caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. If you like the routine of making and drinking a cup of warmth in the morning but don't drink coffee or are trying to cut down, try Mudwater. If you're looking for a different way to kick off your day with a delicious, warming, enhancing way that isn't just a caffeine rush, try Mudwater. Each ingredient was added with intention. It has cacao and chai for just a hint of caffeine, lion's mane mushrooms to support focus, cordyceps to help support physical performance, chaga and reishi to support your immune system, and cinnamon, which is a potent antioxidant. Mudwater also makes a non-dairy creamer out of coconut milk and MCT, and a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar and lakuma, which is the fruit of an Andean tree that was used by the Inca, to add if you prefer those options. Or you can mix a match. Add a bit of their coconut milk and MCT creamer with some honey uh, from bees, or use Mudwater's Lakuma and coconut palm sugar sweetener and skip the bees entirely. Mudwater is also 100% USDA, organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate plus masala chai, which includes ginger and cardamom, nutmeg, and cloves. It's also delicious blended into a smoothie. I had one just this morning. I had uh, it with banana and ice and uh, some yogurt and a touch of honey and cacao nibs and some strawberries, and it was amazing. To get 15% off, go to mudwater.com slash darkhorsepod to support the show or use code darkhorsepod uh, for 15% off. All right. right. Our final sponsor this week is Biome, maker of knobs, N-O-B-S. Knobs is a new kind of dentifrice. Dentifrice is anything you use to clean your teeth, toothpaste or powders or knobs. Knobs are fantastic. Biome, that's biome without the E on the end, is focused on transparency, safety, efficacy, and efficiency. Yes, they are different. And knobs is a truly truly fantastic product. Let's talk fluoride. Fluoride is the anti-cavity ingredient in most toothpaste that you already know about. But as we discuss in our book, the fluoride in drinking water is not in a molecular form that is found in nature or that has ever been part of our diet. And ever more research is pointing to neurotoxicity from fluoride exposure, especially in children. Knobs from Biome does not contain fluoride, but unlike competitor products, Knobs does include a different and far better remineralizing agent, which should be called Agent 99. Knobs uses hydroxyapatite. Hydroxyapatite is the main component of the enamel in your teeth, and it is in your bones as well. It is as effective as fluoride in remineralizing teeth without the toxicity of fluoride. Hydroxyapatite doesn't merely stop cavities from forming. It can even arrest tooth decay once it is underway. Knobs also has no abrasives like charcoal or baking soda, and also has no sulfites, parabens, phthalates, microplastics, no BS. It's right there in the name. Furthermore, Knobs comes in the form of dehydrated tablets, which allows them to be shelf-stable without any preservatives. Take a tablet, chew it a few times, and brush as normal. Your teeth are going to feel fantastically clean because they are. Also, unlike with toothpaste, TSA has no interest in knobs because they're tablets. So if you're flying with knobs, you don't risk losing your dentifrice in security. So check out knobs at www.betterbiome.com slash darkhorse. Remember, that's biome without the E. B-E-T-T-E-R-B-I-O-M 
com slash darkhorse. Listeners can enjoy 15% off their first one-month supply of knobs. So go to www.betterbiome.com slash darkhorse now to discover a great new way to clean your teeth. Indeed. Okay, great sponsors as usual. And um, there are a number of things to talk about today. Do you want to start? Why don't you start? Really? Yes. I thought, okay. I thought uh, Zach had asked you to start. Okay. Uh, nope. I think we have reversed the okay. order for technical reasons that okay. are above my pay grade. <clears throat> oh, are they? Yes. That's fascinating. Um, well, I wanted to mention uh, that uh, Jill Biden has tested positive for COVID. Um, but, um, and there's a remarkable article. I'm sure there are many more remarkable articles about, about this fact. Uh, including in the Telegraph, which is, of course, a British paper. Uh, so I, I find it maybe more interesting to read news about the U.S. from non-American sources. Uh, they sometimes have uh, a, a better view on things, a, a more nuanced and at least less you know, embedded in the, in the problem uh, view on things. But I, I guess before we go there, I also wanted to say that my natural selections this week, I wrote about uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's husband. I remember him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign slogan, which I only came to be aware of this week, which is together we can finish the job. Now, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Isn't it? And I do. I encourage you guys to go check out my natural selections piece on this. Uh, I compare it to Reagan, who I was never any fan of back back in the days. Um, slogan. Uh, which was It's Morning in America. That was one of his ad campaigns. It's Morning in America. And it seemed ridiculous at the time. What the hell is he talking about? He hasn't done anything good for the country. Of course, you look at some of the numbers now and you think, oh, yeah, okay. I've had some of that wrong. You know, he did he, he did turn some stuff around. Of course, some of the stuff that he turned around uh, might have been uh, the result of skullduggery in order to get him elected in the first place. You know, this is true. Um, but... Regardless of whether or not you think uh, that Reagan's America was, in fact, mourning in America, uh, it was hopeful. It was forward thinking. It was saying, we are born again. Here we are. Let's go forward. Let's do something amazing. And together we can. And let's finish the job. So as I write about in Natural Selections this week, I'm like, what, what job is that, Joe? Just, you know, fully selling out the Americans to Big Pharma? Um Reducing, with apologies to Grover Norquist, reducing the size and influence of science so that you can drown it in a bathtub. <laughs> That's a fair point. Right? I mean, it's just like, what? Really? We're going to finish the job? And then what? Well, if you think about the comparison between the two men, it's actually pretty dramatic, right? Yeah. Now, both, I would argue, and don't leap out of your seats, but <laughs> I would argue that both men were actually, are actually, in the case of Biden, figureheads. Mm -hmm. These people are obviously not in charge of policy. Um, yep. And in Reagan's case, his purpose was to provide a commanding presence um, that uh, made policy changes that it might otherwise not have been possible possible. And whatever you think of those policy changes, the idea that a figurehead has a purpose um, and that purpose is uh, the, you know, the image that the nation casts into the world, for example. I remember my grandmother swooning over him mm -hmm. because she remembered him as a Hollywood star, as, you know, B-list actor, whatever. He was never huge, but he was handsome and dashing. She's like, oh, I get to vote for him. 
topic. So that, you know, that was part of what the appeal was. Right. You could read lines. And in Biden's case, he's about as commanding as <laughs> Bonzo, the chimp in the movie for which Reagan is so uh, famously derided. Bedtime uh, for Bonzo, is that it? Bedtime for Bonzo, okay. yes. Um, this is so far before our time that I am certain neither you nor I have seen that film. Nope. But... Um, but in any case, uh, actually, uh, you, you didn't happen to see a Dave Smith comedy routine uh, in which he argues that he loves Joe Biden um, because Biden is almost a perfect description of the state of the nation, this tissue paper thin individual, um, which anyway, it's a pretty funny routine. But, the uh, you know, Biden, uh, you know, he can barely command his own shoes. Right. He just he's not in a good state. And the idea that for some reason, even as ridiculous as it was to elect him the first time, we're staring down the barrel of having him in an election a second time. And that the slogan, which actually um, it's a great contrast to Reagan's slogan, but it reminds me an awful lot of George Bush Sr.'s slogan. Do you remember that? Did you run across it? Now, I mean, as it turns out that there are often many slogans. And so like, yeah. it's morning in America. I don't think it was Reagan's official slogan. That was just that one ad campaign. Right. Um, so well, I don't know. The no. one I remember, yeah. I mean, and you know, uh, George Bush Sr. was a lot of things, but memorable he wasn't. Um, as I actually, before you tell us, as I, as I say in the, in the beginning of this piece that I uh, wrote this week, um, the It's Morning in America ad campaign uh, was, you know, much derided in liberal circles in 1984. And of course, we were too young to vote in that election. But in 1988, which was the first election that both you and I could could vote in, uh, at the point that Bush got elected, I wore uh, a It's Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, in America, pin around campus, just feeling very dark. It felt like such dark times. And oh boy, was it not by comparison to where we've gone to. Yeah, my spelling at the time was not good enough for that pin. But, you know, um, I, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good one. So his campaign. Well, I don't know. I don't actually okay. remember if it was his slogan. Yeah. But he was famously associated with the idea, stay the course. Oh yes, he said that. I think maybe he said that in a debate at a debate, and then it got picked up in some ads or something. Stay the course, Stay the which course. is like the minimum possible argument in favor of something is that changing course is bad. Well, I mean, it's it's similarly not exciting for sure, um, but I mean, I think I think it's some. If you really are in a time of plenty, if the country really has been turned around, especially if it's under your president's watch and you were his VP. Yeah. And, you know, I don't I don't think in retrospect, almost any historian would argue that 1988 was that moment. But, you know, there were certainly a lot of good things going on in the country right then. But if that was really the moment that you were in, um, you you might compellingly argue, you know what, I, I was here for the last eight years. I, you know helped i helped this happen and i can therefore continue to to do more in the same direction because boy are we on the right on the right course yeah i, I agree it was so i mean look i don't like politics at all politics is the the malignant portion of policy making and so i don't yep. i don't have patience for any of this stuff but the idea that there's some version of slogans that we remember that is um, that is optimistic and visionary, and then there's some 
set of slogans that is so bureaucratic and empty that it's just hard to imagine what they were thinking. Even if this is the argument, we should stay the course because the course is pretty good and, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good or whatever it is. I mean, it also seems like uh, it is pretty classic conservative, right? Right. What we're doing is working. Why would we change? So I don't, I guess I don't see, you know, I'm not inspired by it, but I don't see that it's an error inherently in the same way that I feel like let's finish the job. And I didn't, I, you know, I didn't spend 20 hours at the task, but I went looking like, what do they perceive the job is? And, you know, there, it's like, what does he think he's done in his first term? Oh, I, well, obviously, nothing about this has anything to do with him. This is some... I don't, it, it doesn't matter. Him, the Democrats, team, blue team, all of it. But, you know, the, the arguments about what it is that they have actually done mostly are actually the opposite of what has happened. Well, I, we're going to get into a, a thing here, but the fact is they have done something. And it's the same thing that they've been doing for 30 years. They stave off the French Revolution moment by creating distractions and creating false villains and right. But staving so staving off the French Revolution moment isn't a job. No, it's no. Finish it, the job. How do you finish staving off? That's exactly the point. This is not about us. So the idea is, what are we going to say to the people who are in danger of revolting in order that we can explain why we have no vision, why? We don't accomplish things that matter, why we don't make the obvious plays that would make the public happier, because that's no longer what this party uh, is about. So I really do think this is about, you know, just as when a political party decides uh, to attack education because they aren't downstream of public education. I'm not saying this is what's happening presently, but when a party decides, hey, actually, I don't really want the... Uh, children of my competitors well-educated because that will make them more effective at competing with my children. So I'm going to sabotage public education. I'm going to subsidize my kids' education privately. I'm going to argue for uh, vouchers to recover as much of my investment in publication as I and public education as I can. When you do that, you can't say, let's sabotage our competitors. So you have to say something in as an explanation for why you're not doing the obvious thing, which is figuring out how education should work and investing in it. Um, And I think this is just one of these cases. These people are, and, you know, I don't mean the Democratic Party, but the people who run it are enemies of the citizenry, and therefore it's difficult for them to explain um, what they're doing. And so, of course, an empty slogan is like, well, you're going to need a slogan, um, and no slogan matches what they're up to. I don't, I don't, I guess I don't, I don't find that to be an answer, but Zach has something to say. What you find if you go to the White House social media accounts is that for the last, uh, you know, two years, three years, um, they have been constantly posting statistical things that are, uh, if not outright lies, extremely misleading and misrepresentative. Yeah. So Um, they, they would have us believe that the economy is in better shape than it ever has been. The economy is doing staggeringly well. Yeah. And um, the prime rate is nearly or depending on exactly like basically double what it was when biden took office the prime rate no one could get a mortgage 
like working class and most middle class people can't afford a mortgage when the when mortgage rates are over 8%. Eggs are up, electricity is up, everything is more expensive. And yet we are being told exactly the opposite by these people. They, so the finish the job is like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep on helping the middle class be able to afford great things. No, you're doing the opposite. But uh, you know, look, I knew, I knew this was gonna tangle us. But the fact is, they have one argument for reelecting this guy. What's the one Trump. argument? Right. So you can't say elect us because Trump sucks worse. Right. That is not a slogan. You need something that explains why you didn't have a slogan. And the main reason you didn't have a slogan is because the only thing that you could plausibly be accomplishing is keeping the boogeyman out of the office, yep. right? No, and actually the the, uh, the campaign video on Biden's site, on the presidential re-election campaign site, uh, which includes the tagline, which includes, let's finish this job. <clears throat> he slurs, so he sort of says this rather than the, because he slurs, because he's ancient. Um, but it literally begins with footage and doom music about from January 6th. Right. So, I mean, like that, that is clearly the only reason that that's they the actually job. want you to know what. In the, but but again, that's not a job you can finish. You can't finish not electing. Oh, no, Trump. no, no. First of all, whatever the hell is going on with the weaponizing of the courts against Trump, this is a job that they could plausibly finish. Now, I think mm. they are absolutely insane to be doing so maybe, this. Maybe that maybe that maybe, is a wink. Yeah, maybe it is a wink. Yeah. And the um, let, let's face facts. This is, I'm not a good enough historian to say the weakest candidate who has ever been run by a major party, but as weak as he was the last time, he's even weaker, right? right? right. Even weaker and more mm -hmm. despicable. And the and we know more about his, his corruption and, and all of that, which, yeah. was, which was completely evident. But yeah. he is still the most likable guy in the party. This guy who isn't likable at all is still the most likable guy in the party and that tells you something they've gotten rid of all the decent people so that's not true who who newsom no i mean i mean for one thing bobby kennedy is still a democrat um he is but as i keep pointing out they are more afraid of bobby kennedy than they are of i understand Trump, that, but you just so. made the claim that biden is the most likable democrat on offer well Let's put it this way. He is the most likable Democrat that the people who refuse to give up their stranglehold over this once important party could possibly run. No, I think it's some kind, it's, it's like the, the, the union of likable and controllable. He's completely controllable. Yeah. He's in no position to do anything of his own. But anyway, I, I did want to point out the really direct parallel between stay the course and finish the job. Like it's, almost the same formulation mm -hmm. as morning in America and make America great again are mm -hmm. very reminiscent of the same concept. Right. And, you know, as you point out, it's interesting that this nominally liberal president, and he's only nominally liberal, what yeah. he really is, is just corrupt and using the echo of liberalism as a disguise, but um, that this is now a very conservative uh, statement with no vision whatsoever. It is, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's hearkening back to yesterday, which was perhaps actually nominally better than today. And whose fault is that? Yes, and it's also terribly <laughs> ironic because um, the most important thing that we could say about the Democratic Party and its value 
between when it was a defender of slavery and its current instantiation as a wickedly corrupt shadow of its former self. But in its heyday, this party actually advanced policies that were in the interest um, of working people. And those yep. policies actually completed yep. a liberal vision of the way the West should run. And the way the West should run is that it should be interested in uh, colorblindness, equal protection under the law, everybody having a fair access to the market. Um, all of those liberal principles, which the Democratic Party is now savaging. Right. This, and this is actually a little back and forth we had in the comments on my natural selections piece. Someone pointed out exactly this, like the parties have effectively reversed yep. right, what they stand for. Uh, and, you know, this is this is exactly what you're saying and, and what we've said before. But um, most voters haven't caught on yet, or at least most blue voters haven't caught on yet, that the Republicans are actually the ones standing up for the gains of yesterday, which were mostly put into motion by uh, radicals and liberals and hippies and such and Democrats, right? And the Democrats are busy working really hard to dismantle all of those gains. Yes, in fact. Like working really, really hard. To make us hyper aware of things like race, that we were, you know, we mm -hmm. weren't done with it, but we were definitely headed in the right direction. Yeah, hyper-aware of race, dismantling uh, women's rights by pretending that men are women, and I, it's it's remarkable. And, like, I don't... How much brand loyalty could you possibly have to maintain blinders that make you think that today's Democratic Party is the same one as that of the 60s? Right. Like, you know, put aside the question of corruption. Perhaps, perhaps both parties have been corrupt the whole time. They, certainly, there's been some corruption in both parties the whole time. But in terms of what they were actually really working towards and standing for, what the Democrats stand for and were working towards in the '60s has no relationship to what is happening now. It has, yeah. It, it, it's a, it's an ironic sabotage of all of the the good stuff that was accomplished, and uh, frankly, that's why some of us are so freaking pissed off about it. Um, but I would also point out there's an obvious tactic here: the um, creating of a narrative around January sixth and around Donald Trump is about getting your amygdala to do the voting, right? <laughs> That's what they have to do, because if it was your conscious mind rationally considering who these people are and what they're doing and what it means to your future, there's no conceivable way that anybody would support it. And the reason that people do support it is because they have been uh, whipped into a frenzy of fear over Trump and over the idea that something like a coup almost unfolded on January 6th. And whatever is true, A, the in obvious involvement of the FBI uh, in January 6th means that anybody who thinks they know what happened really has to take a step back and r rethink it. Yeah, um, and, and I mean, this is a point we've made over and over and over again. But <clears throat> meanwhile, what happened um, to the people holding cities like Portland, hostage for months at a time nightly riots every single night have any of these people seen justice right and uh you will no doubt recall that i wanted to see both groups 
pardoned. That's right. Because um, the necessity for us to get out of letting our amygdala be the deciding factor in elections is so great that um, it would, I mean, it would have been a slam dunk. And, you know, that was the patriotic thing to do mm-hmm. was to say, all right, we've seen stuff on both sides that's yeah. unacceptable, um, but we are not going to tear ourselves apart um, sorting it out, sending people to jail. And especially, you know, it, it, the comparison is so clear. I mean, frankly, that would be a gift to the left. And instead, the left has been like, nah, we're just going to pretend that none of that crap happened at all on our side. Yeah. And it was it went on for a tremendously long time. Some of the cities are still under its sway. I mean, Portland is. Yep. And, and there's just, the, you know, it's mostly peaceful. They're mostly sane. They're mostly dressed. They're mostly not on fentanyl. They're mostly like, what? Yeah, no, it's nonsense. And it went on. It was, you know, if it wasn't premeditated on the first night, it was premeditated for the, you know, 99 nights after that. That's right. Um, and that's very different than a one-off event where, you know, actually the story we were sold is in conflict with the video, which they didn't show us, in which, you know, people who've been locked away in a jail cell were being... About which one are you talking January about? January 6th. Okay. Um, where, you know, you had, you had this, uh, uh, the QAnon shaman guy, and I probably shouldn't be using that term because I think it was part of the, yep. the psyop, but where he's being, you know, led around by the Capitol police inside the building. I mean, this, none of this makes any sense, but, um, anyway, I do think we, the public would be really wise to stop letting them uh, trigger our reflexes because our reflexes are not good at thinking. And this amygdala stuff um, is getting a lot of people who would ordinarily look at Joe Biden and say, you've got to be crazy. That's the candidate. But of course, you know, with, you know, the boogeyman as the alternative, it's like, well, you know. No, and that's that's the only way that he can win again is if uh, Trump is his competitor. Yeah, and there, and it, I, I don't know. You he know, certainly can't win against Bobby. No, he well, not, not, in, a not in a fair fight. Not in a fair fight. If yeah. if the thing takes place in the Democratic Party, then I don't see I don't see how Bobby could get the nomination. Right, the thing is right. too That's, too rigged. But, but in a general election, yep. Oh yeah. Um, the only possible chance that Biden has of winning in a fair fight is against Trump. Yep. And um, of course, that presumes that a fair fight is possible. Yep. All right. So, um, oh, hold on. Uh, Jill Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. Jill, you said. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and here we have the Telegraph with a, you know, remarkably youthful-ish. You can show, please. Um, totally competent-looking president there. And uh, happy-looking Jill. And um, what were, oh, is that all I get now? Oh, they shortened this since I saw it last. Um, we have, uh, they're considered in a high-risk group because of their age, but both have been vaccinated. Mm. As if that's helpful, which it's not. And then um, two paragraphs up from there in this very short piece, Mrs. Biden, 72, last tested positive for the virus in August last year after Mr. Biden himself recovered from the same illness. 
Let's test a positive. This is just what we do. Because we all understand that uh, vaccines provide no protection at all against disease, um, but they just make you kind of roll with the punches. Right? So I, I mean, this is this is both old news and even the Telegraph, which is not a particularly left-leaning paper at all, uh, is just it's it's just becoming background bullshit. It's well, at least they're vaccinated. Well, the last time she got uh, COVID it was just a little more than a year ago. What were all those shots about? Well, I, I have to tell you, um, this is one of these stories that I, for reasons of keeping my analytical sanity, uh, do not process because I'm not confident that it means that any of the things about the story are true. Mm-hmm. If they thought it was in their interest to portray Jill Biden as sick with COVID and recovering, I have no doubt they would do it. Sure. Um, I do not trust that Jill Biden or Joe Biden got the same vaccinations as citizens. Right. So, so you, you're res- keep going, but you are responding to a very different level of the story than I am. I'm responding to the media reporting on it and what it leads people to believe about um, the normalization of, well, of course she got COVID. Everyone gets COVID. Like, well, what were the shots for then? And, well, of course she's not going to get sick because, of course, she's vaccinated. So right. both of those things exist within a couple lines of one another in this mainstream outlet. Right. And I do process that part of the story, that the um, utility of the story right. is in reporting it just so. Right. right. She got it. She's not very sick. Of course, she was vaccinated. Um, and... I can see why that narrative would be useful because, of course, we know lots of people who are getting sick with it, mm-hmm. um, mostly vaccinated, uh, and the, the the obvious ghost in this machine is whatever Anthony Fauci was doing that created the problem in the first place, denied us remedies that worked, and then sold us a one-size-fits-all remedy that didn't work. And so... Um, what we should be doing is saying, okay, if this is the new normal and people are now just simply getting this disease on the regular and whatever you think of it, you may think it's not a big deal. You and I think it's a bigger deal than people think it is because of some of the uh, long lasting effects of it, the broad range of tissues that it infects and things like that, um, that the costs of the errors that were set in motion by Fauci and his friends is gigantic yep, with sure no is. end in sight. This is, this is something we, we are going to indefinitely pay costs over. And so we should be very focused on how this happened and what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. And we appear to be um, very lightly focused there, if at all. Yes. Yes, we are. Um, so COVID also seems to have hit the U.S. Open. Uh, one of the the Grand Slam, the one of the big four tournaments in tennis, and the New York Times asks, and you may show my screen, why are so many players getting sick at the U.S. Open? Um, just a few a few bits from this. So many so many people sick, but largely it's not being attributed to COVID. And the New York Times is kind of going like, oh, we don't know. 
well, you're not required to get vaccinated anymore. So maybe, um, as if that would have prevented it from being there, uh, but you're also not required to be tested. So how would we know? Well, not that the tests are any, any good anyway, uh, but it seems odd that they are almost like pretending that you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, when for so long, for, for a couple of years, it was all about for sure, anytime anyone is sick, it's definitely COVID, even though, yeah, you kind of actually can't tell. So here we have, um, you know, just a number of people sick. It's not just players. The ESPN commentator, John McEnroe, said on Tuesday that he had, he, see, he is the one person in the story who actually tested positive for the coronavirus after feeling unwell. But again, the tests are unreliable in both directions. It is unclear whether all of the players have the same illness or whether their cases are connected, but something has been going around the U.S. Open. Well, that sentence alone is incoherent because if something is going around the right. U.S. Open, it's connected. And if it's some things, if, uh, you know, it's also extraordinarily unlikely that um, unlike any past year, a whole lot of players are getting very sick, sick enough to have to um, stop, stop matches, um, that it's completely unrelated. They're all independent cases. Like, you know, that's, that doesn't seem... It just seems like a contagious disease. It seems, it seems like a to contagious disease. behaving disease. like a contagious it, disease. Exactly. It is, I would point out, um, and I would love to have the retrospective data on this, the pre-COVID data, yeah. but one of the things that seems to be true is that there's a lot of out-of-season illness. Now, of course, summer yeah. colds were always a thing. Right. But no, but, but this is these are this is worse than a cold here. Yeah. Yeah. Um oh. and so anyway, there there is a question about, you know, what what was in Pandora's box that they released? What is the effect right. of this? And how much of it is them trying to spook us by, as they obviously did, utilizing lots of phenomena that weren't COVID and lumping them in with COVID deaths and, and all of this. Um So but, what game are they playing now? That's, yeah. that's what I'm wondering. Like, okay, so the game has changed. What game is it now, guys? Like, what what are you up to? What's the point now? What, what is the job that you are trying to finish, New York Times? So here's just a couple more yep. <clears throat> things from this this article in the New York Times. Illnesses are possible at any tournament where players are often in close quarters and share facilities. But with players no longer required to test for COVID-19, it is difficult to determine the cause of the illnesses among them. Again, like... Testing for COVID-19, if we actually had good tests, even if they did that, unless it was positive, you still wouldn't have any more information about what else they might have. Um, but they're also not good tests. And by the way, why not? Like, why do we yeah. still not have good tests? That's a question. Health protocols at the U.S. Open have become less stringent since 2020, when spectators were not allowed to attend the tournament and when players took to the empty courts in face masks. Stringent is one word for it. Insane is another, right? <laughs> like you had you had elite athletes playing in face masks across a freaking tennis court from one another with no one in the stands. Well, it did mean they could Less grumble at now. each other with uh, without violating any rules of etiquette. Good lord! When fans were allowed to return in 2021, they were required to show proof of vaccination against the coronavirus. Yes, they were. That requirement has since been dropped, and those attending the U.S. Open this year do not need to show proof of vaccination, provide a negative coronavirus test, or wear masks. Um, and then this uh, young woman, uh, Jabor, I'm not totally sure, Ons Jabor, uh, who was seated like five or something, um, got really, really sick. She says, I'm taking a lot of medicine, she said, adding that she basically took every medication the U.S. Open doctors have. Great. Good for her. Why isn't she getting well when she's taking all the medicine the doctors recommend? Yeah, geez, I wonder what it is. How does she get to be an elite athlete doing that? I'm a zombie because I have a flu. 
So this whole thing just feels like yet another, well, PSYOP, honestly, like, you know, that sounds, we got one person, the problem, you know, one of the most famous people at the tournament, who's now a commentator, John McEnroe, um, having actually tested positive and having all the symptoms that we are told are currently associated with the current brand of COVID that uh, we have been sold. And yet these other people are assured that they have the flu or walking like, I, I just, how, how is anyone continuing to believe any of the stories from these people? Well, I want to go back to the conspicuous fact of us not having reliable tests. Right. Um, the fact that the tests have not gotten substantially better over time is conspicuous. Yeah. And the degree to which the people playing this game have been interested in creating narratives that were not supported by evidence but were very difficult to fight because it wasn't like you could say, here's the evidence and it doesn't match your story because the evidence was confused by all this noise. So in other words, is it possible that really noisy COVID tests are a feature and not a bug because it allows you to claim anything at any moment, mm-hmm. right? And is that, is, you know, I, I do think I, I have a sense of foreboding around the upcoming 14 months mm. that the U.S. presidential election is uh, going to create a... Um, a fertile landscape for psychological operations of many kinds. We're going to have many claims of misdis and malinformation over presumably true things will be dismissed, false things will be portrayed, all of the usual stuff. And the ability to have a viral boogeyman that you can call forth at any moment by declaring that some set of illness is this thing uh, may be the reason that the tests aren't any good. Because if we, you know, if you could just simply go to CVS and buy a test that was reliable enough that, you know, it really mm-hmm. gave you a confidence that you either did or didn't have the thing, right. um, then we'd be in a very different place because we would actually be able to generate information about what is or isn't circulating. Yeah, that's right. Um, so um, in unrelated news Novak Djokovic Djokovic, uh, is playing he's seated two it's interestingly not one Uh, and he's wiping the floor with his opponents there's lots of people who aren't sick at the U.S. Open he's not the only one Um, but he of course is famously unvaccinated was not allowed to play in earlier U.S. Open Uh, and uh, Australians uh, I think captured him and had him in like in in one of their little encampments yes Um, despite being well Despite despite being well, um, you know, so well, in fact, that he refused uh, to take a um, experimental treatment for a disease which, if he got, he would be very likely to fend off because of his youth and vigor. Yes, and the treatment would be very likely or too likely to rob him of his elite athletic status by virtue of a mechanism that we will talk about a little later in the podcast. Yeah. So... Um, not surprising that he's continuing to wipe the floor with his opponents, but yes, uh, it is a little surprising to me because we have known since early in the pandemic that wiping the floor doesn't help since this is not transmitted by fomite. Okay, I thought that was a pretty good joke. No, I don't. I don't think so. Oh, um, all right. Well, <laughs> so the an world attempt was made, as the kids say. The 
World Socialist website has uh, an opinion about what's happening at the U.S. Open as well. U.S. Open tennis players fall by the wayside as COVID surges. This is... Uh, the, the first paragraph is, is amazing. And I'm just going to read the first paragraph and then the final paragraph of this piece from the World Socialist website. This year's U.S. Open tennis tournament in New York City has been plagued by what is being euphemistically referred to as a mysterious illness and what, in fact, has all the hallmarks of a COVID-19 super spreader event. A number of top players have had to pull out of the tournament or have struggled to play due to COVID-like symptoms, including respiratory and gastrointestinal ailments. Actually, one more paragraph here. The spate of tennis players getting sick takes place under conditions where the United States Tennis Association and the U.S. Open organizers have dismantled all anti-COVID safety measures in the midst of a new global surge of the pandemic. This is the first hidden surge of the pandemic since the World Health Organization and the Biden administration ended their COVID-19 public health emergency declarations in early May, which cleared the path for the scrapping of all pandemic surveillance and public health measures globally. We just check out the language there, right? Yeah. The scrapping of all pandemic surveillance. The scrapping of surveillance. Yes. How dare they scrap the surveillance? <laughs> How dare they scrap the scrappy surveillance that didn't work worth a scrap in the first place? Amazing, right? And so... Like this piece is long and remarkable and I'll link to it in the show notes and all, but here, here is the final paragraph. More fundamentally, the criminal cover-up of the pandemic and the unchecked spread of COVID-19 must be opposed with a socialist public health program in diametric opposition to the monstrosity unfolding at the U.S. Open. What is required is a powerful mass movement of the international working class in unity with public health workers and scientists to force the implementation of a global elimination strategy to stop all human-to-human transmission of COVID-19 throughout the world. Oh, man. This was written now. Yeah. This is, it, this, it, is this week. This is the U.S. Open happening right now. This is the World Socialist saying, what is required is to force the implementation of a global elimination strategy. It is almost a perfect description of how a Marxist would think about this, like independent of the biology, the implausibility of what it is they're proposing. Force must be used to get us to unite around doing away with this virus that we're going to be stuck <laughs> with for the rest of eternity, right? I mean, it's, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And if we have to lock you in your houses and get your neighbors to rat on you in order to make it happen, then so be it. I mean, right? Totally. Communism in a nutshell. So it's amazing. Yeah. They, they, they're not even communists. They're socialists. Like it's not. It's, it's not even. I, I'm just. I'm just shocked that anyone puts this, um, puts this in writing. I mean, like, okay, one more. Throughout the world, the vast majority of the population can no longer receive free or affordable COVID nineteen testing. Treatments like Paxlovid and even vaccines will soon only be available at marked up prices. Who are these people? Who are these people? They're they're like they're like commies in bed with pharma like yeah, pharma commies. you know they're pharma commie what the hell this is it's it's nuts it's totally nuts and i i don't know i guess i guess just that it's totally nuts what that they would put that up and apparently have no sense of irony or embarrassment yeah how about workers of the world unite around not getting taken for a ride by this shit anymore i mean you know we yeah. we wake workers up the world unite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we i mean this is just obvious right they're on the wrong side of history and they can't figure it out yeah Ish. 
Yeah. Um, one more thing before we go into what you wanted to talk about, uh, it's, the connection is just tennis, uh, but it's not about COVID. It's that uh, Martina Navratilova uh, has, who, you know, another a contemporary of John McEnroe, although of course they didn't play against one another because um, neither of them pretended to be the sex that they were not. And that wasn't really that allowed then anyway, although um, there was um, one, one such case uh, in the 70s or 80s uh, when both of them were playing. Um, she has been speaking out against uh, men playing in women's sports, and she has written a piece now um, published at Genspect, uh, which is uh, a fantastic organization uh, that is uh, having a conference in November that I will be at uh, in, in Denver. Uh, and this is published last uh, end of August, five years later, what I've learned about women and men in sports. And there's a, there's a lot of good here, right? She is standing up for, um, for women to be able to play against women in sports. And she says among, in, in part of her argument, um, Serena Williams made the same basic point when Grand Slam champion Andy Murray challenged her to an exhibition match in 2013. She refused, explaining to David Letterman, Andy Murray has been joking about me and him playing a match. I'm like, Andy, seriously, are you kidding me? If I were to play Andy Murray, I would lose 6-0, 6-0. The men are a lot faster and they serve harder. They hit harder. It's just a different game. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip that one for a moment. And then they, then Navratilova writes, the female category was created to provide opportunities for women to compete fairly. It was always intended to exclude males. We need to keep excluding them. And this is like, she just says it so clearly and simply. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to, and, you know, put aside whether or not I or you, um, think that this has gotten out of control and may not be what we were sold at all. But it's quite one thing to say, I feel I'm a man, but I feel more like a woman and I'm going to dress that way. And I'd love it if you were to address me that way. Um, put aside what that might mean for that person and society. Anyone pretending that putting on the costume of makes you the thing is just doing that pretending. And this is being used to erode women's rights. And frankly, the, the, and we've said this over and over and again, like women's sports is the piece that matters the least, right? It just does. I care about women's sports. A lot of people do, but it matters the least, but it's the most obvious place because everyone can see everyone who is physically active at all and has ever engaged in any kind of athletic competition understands that men and women are different and are going to be differently capable over in the athletic realm. So there's just, there's one thing in here um, that Navratilova wrote um, that I sort of, I threw an error at and I wanted, I wanted to point this out because um, it, it goes into, you know, the giant rabbit hole of what is actually Title IX and what does it, what does it promise? Uh, so she writes, the promise of Title IX has not been realized 51 years after its inception. According to a report by the Women's Sports Foundation, high school girls enjoy 1.1 million fewer sports opportunities than boys do, and college women enjoy 80,000 fewer opportunities than men. Champion Women Incorporated has found that women lose out on $1.1 billion in college scholarship dollars alone, not to mention inequities in sponsorships and media coverage. I want to focus on that um, the statistics that she's pulling from the Women's Sports Foundation report, which... I've got here too, and I've skimmed. Um, but the particular statistics that Navratilova is pointing out here 
um, as evidence that the promise of Title IX has not been realized is that, quote, high school girls enjoy 1.1 million fewer sports opportunities than boys do, and college women enjoy 80,000 fewer opportunities than men. This is not evidence that Title IX has failed. This is not evidence that women are being um, treated unfairly. This is not evidence that there is bias against women in sport. It can be true, and there can it can also be true, and I'm not saying that we've gotten there, but this is not evidence of bias um, because it is quite possible, and I would argue incredibly likely, that men are far more likely to be interested in engaging in competitive athletic sports than are women. And unless what you are arguing is that men and women have to be exactly the same, with exactly the same interests and the same outcomes, and only then shall we have achieved equality, and of course that's not equality, that's equity, uh, then that's, that's a ridiculous desire. And I went looking to see, is that actually what Title IX is, is, is shooting for? Because I thought that Title IX, I've seen Title IX be weaponized for a long time now, right? <clears throat> um, but I never thought that what it, what it was trying to do was get equal numbers of male and female athletes. Yeah. Because that's a stupid goal, right? So what I find is, and sorry, I have to pull it up. It's going to take me a moment here. What I find is... In this uh, report that Navratilova is citing, this little graphic, Title IX's three-part test of gender equity and athletic participation opportunities. And this, I, I find, is an actually accurate portrayal of what Title IX offers. This is a three-part test in which institutions that meet any of these are found to be in compliance with Title IX. Part one, substantial proportionality. Athletic participation opportunities for girls or women and boy or men athletes are offered at rates proportional to their enrollment. Okay, that's the one. That's the one that we just heard uh, Navratilova trot out those statistics. Well, you don't have, you know, at this point, we've got like 60, 40 women to men on many college campuses, right? So we need to have 60% of the athletes be women. That's a stupid goal. And that is one of the ways that institutions could be found to be in compliance with Title IX, but it's only one. Or, number two, history and continuing practice of program expansion. Offerings in the athletic program have kept pace with increasing numbers of girls and women athletes. Cool. Less operational, like it's less easy to see exactly what the metric is, but that sounds right. That sounds like, yeah, okay, if, if there are women who are trying to play sports, there should be the offerings for them. To me, that's what Title IX was about. Or... Full and effective accommodation. The existing menu of teams offered satisfies the interests and abilities of the underrepresented sex. So two interesting things here. First of all, that seems like um, the broadest, most doable, and most actually um, honorable goal of Title IX. If there are, you know, if in the early 70s there are a bunch of girls in high school who really wanted to play soccer, and the response was, girls don't play soccer, Title IX came to be in part to help that not be the response. Actually, we want to play soccer. And um, if we want to play soccer and you've got a boys soccer team, you got to put some resources towards girls being able to play soccer too at the high school level or at the college level as well. Um, but the other thing that's interesting here is that it doesn't say the existing menu of teams offered satisfies the interests and abilities of girls and women. It says of the underrepresented sex. 
Um, so there may be some some sports uh, that are historically female dominated, and Title IX actually requires uh, that if boys and men start becoming interested in some such sports, uh, that there be a movement to accommodate their interests as well. And you know, this is this is also you know, people who don't understand populations or teams might get confused by the fact that like, oh well, we can just find one person at some school, one, one girl who wants to play basketball. And the fact that there's no women's basketball team means that they're not in compliance with Title IX. It's like, you know what? One person does not make a basketball team. I don't know how many you need. Eight, maybe? I mean, I know five people are on the court at a time, but to make a team, you probably need seven or eight, something like that. It's probably usually on a deeper bench than that. But one person saying, oh, God, Title IX has failed because I don't get to do what I want to do. It's like, well, if what you want to do is a team sport and no one else wants to play with you, that's not about Title IX. And the government should have no say in forcing a bunch of other girls or women to play with you because you have a desire. And frankly, this feels like in microcosm, the the entire insanity going on on the left with regard to like, if I want to do this thing, I'm going to throw a fit until I get someone from the government to come make sure that I get what I want. And not only that, but the reason that there aren't others like me who want to do this thing is obviously evidence of the bias, discrimination, racism, sexism, Something. everything. Yeah, where, totally. you know, it is not unlikely that, for example, girls are less interested in playing football. Right. And I don't like I, I wanted to. and I didn't have time to like, OK, are there any women's football teams or do women just not play football? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. And it, it's obviously a self-reinforcing pattern because to the extent that it isn't on television and uh, that there aren't lots of programs means that girls who might be interested in exploring it don't end up doing it. But um I think it is pretty clear that at least if you took a static snapshot that the interest by girls and women in playing football is going to be lower. Well, I mean, I mean, football is a good example, right? I mean, these are war games. Yeah. This, this is, this is the Olympics. This is, this is for show that we have a ready force that can engage in competition for play such that at some moment, um, that we are called upon to do so, we will have ready um, uh, warriors. Yep. Right? And, and there there are few... And women don't engage in war games. Right. And they don't engage in war in right. virtually any culture at virtually any time. One because of the other. Right. And, you know, this particular game is one that actually, not for every single player, but at least across a team does reward the very things that distinguish men and women so differently, right? The, the weight and strength advantage right. is a primary player in football, whereas, you know, agility can compensate for, for it to an extent on a basketball court. And I don't know, I assume women's basketball has a different basket height, so you can just simply neutralize the distinction between... I don't know. Um, Zach knows. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that professional women's basketball is famously boring to watch. So I think it may not be lowered to make it. Um, okay, famously boring isn't. I think isn't it the... may be the same game that is not very well suited not, to women's not, bodies. Uh, not an informed uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going not to bet from an uninformed <laughs> position that the basket is lowered to a different standard. Um, but in any case, um, one more thing. I didn't want to put you on the spot. Yeah. I am having trouble remembering. I'm embarrassed which player I can't remember. Yeah. But the famous match between 
Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. Billie Jean King. That's yeah. who it was. Yeah. Why does that never come up in the arguments over the difference between males and females in sport? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think I, I, it, it does some, and I think I think the old guard mostly is just rolling their eyes and hoping it will go away, right? Like they, I, I think no one who's not paying close attention to the trans ideology madness actually can believe that it is has gotten as far as it has uh yeah. and and some people and i, th I think i think navratilova started out here frankly um sees one thing and goes like oh well that can't that can't be the case and then finds herself dragged i think she got dragged by that uh that trans bicyclist i don't remember which one there's so many of them now um and she went looking, you know, she got told to educate herself. She's like, okay, I'll go educate myself. I, I, you know, I am only like one of the best female tennis players of all time, but okay, I'll go educate myself. And, you know, and also, you know, out early as a lesbian before that was easy at all or yeah. common at all. So she's, you know, she's, she's been through all of these ringers that are, should be relevant here. And she went and educated herself and went like, yeah, no, men shouldn't be playing in women's sports. I am pretty sure that's obvious to everyone. And I think she, you know, like, like anyone who goes deep, goes like whoa can't believe we're here but most people are just like i not oh not my thing not my story i don't know i'm sure there's truth on both sides i'm sure the truth is somewhere in the middle well no the truth is not always somewhere in the middle not when you've got an antagonist that is so powerful and so insane that they move their position completely off the playing field yeah and you can always tell uh who it is because the point is they destroy the possibility of having a nuanced perspective they right. they destroy the middle specifically so that we have an argument that can't be can't be resolved yeah yeah okay i think um i think i'm done all right um well i wanted to talk about something uh and i'll present sort of the the general version of it but far too often in the modern sense making landscape I think that there is just a missing layer. And uh, I'll start by quoting uh, my friend Steve Patterson, who has been on the Dark Horse podcast, who uh, once said that uh, philosophy is where it's at, philosophers aren't, hmm. which I think is really insightful. And I, I will say it echoes my own annoyance at the fact that we train people in philosophy, presumably lots of them. We as a society invest in this. And yet, they are nowhere adjudicating debates over evidence. We have mm. claims and counterclaims about uh, global climate change, about COVID, about treatments, about origins, all of these things. That is the right place for philosophers who are actually good at figuring out how to take uh, irreconcilable bodies of evidence and reconcile them so that we can at least um, proceed in a rational way relative to um, to the signal that we can extract from the noise. You're looking for applied philosophers. Right. Yeah. I think we should mm -hmm. be drafting them. It should not be up yeah. to... I'm sure they're underemployed. Well, I think what they <laughs> Or have... do they not exist anymore because they have not been trained to actually do philosophy? I think there is a uh, a grand error just sort of a standard academic error where philosophers who most of the time when there's nothing to talk about end up finding what to talk to each other about and then they come to think that that's their job is talking to other philosophers rather than adjudicating mm -hmm. the really important stuff of the day 
which would be a perfect place for them to say, here's how you deal with this claim and this counterclaim, mm -hmm. right? And that would be a fascinating thing. How many of us would not benefit from seeing somebody who was not a climate scientist come in and say, okay, let me ask you some questions about that claim you are making, and let's see whether it stands up based on, you know, frankly, a lot of ancient wisdom about mm -hmm. the nature of facts. So philosophy is where it's at. Philosophers are not because the philosophers are too busy talking to each other to help the rest of us out, which is what they should be doing, which is presumably the reason we initially subsidized the existence of these fields in the first place. That, that said, what I think is missing are some basic pieces of the puzzle about um, assumptions, about presumption, about burdens of proof, about thresholds of proof, and that these are things that, you know, they're in a, in a court of law, these things are all thoroughly well understood because they have to be, right? Who has the burden of proof? Well, if you've been accused of a crime, the state has the burden of, of proof, right? You could, in theory, say nothing. And if the state cannot make a compelling case that you committed the crime, you, you walk free. You know, what constitutes evidence? The idea that for example, if the state has violated your right to privacy and it has discovered that you, you know, let's say it, it discovers a letter that you have written acknowledging that you committed a crime and describing some of the details, that it is not only not allowed to enter that letter into evidence against you because it cheated to get it, it cheated and violated an important right of yours, but it is not allowed to proceed from fruit of the poisonous tree. That is to say, mm -hmm. it cannot go back to the letter and say, well, okay, we can't use the letter, but what do we learn from the letter that we could use? Actually, everything downstream of it is poisoned. So these kinds of things are dealt with in a formal context in court, but we out here in public trying to figure out what to think about what we're being told are uh, not benefiting from the fact that these uh, these things are actually well, well worked out. So just to um, repeat, I, I said slightly flippantly, uh, you were looking for there to be applied philosophers, and you're now arguing that actually law is applied philosophy at a very formal level, um, but that we need effectively informal applied philosophy uh, in our in our daily lives. And I, I would point out too that actually the you know all of the degrees that people get, um, which then allows them to be teaching undergraduates at university, almost all of them are in fact doctors of philosophy, and. Um, while you might have a PhD in biology, for instance, as we do, or a PhD in art history, or a PhD in chemistry, or any number of other things, um, all of those are supposed to be doctors of philosophy. And whereas our program, our mentors, actually took that very, very seriously, and we were we were effectively trained in the philosophy of science um, throughout throughout our our graduate work. When I have said that to other people with PhDs, when I have said, well. You know, we are supposed to be engaging in philosophical inquiry. I have uh, received everything from quizzical looks to outright laughter. Yeah. Uh, they, they really cannot imagine what the philosophy part of the doctor of philosophy is doing there. Yeah. And they, because they have seen only bastardizations of it or abstractions that are so remote they couldn't possibly be useful... They do not understand what role it plays when life and limb are on the line. Mm -hmm. And I would say that actually one group, a group I'm pretty angry at at the moment, but 
one group has actually distinguished itself in this regard in recent history, and that's the rationalists. Mm. The rationalists, because of their relationship um, with Bayesian analysis, have actually formalized a branch of this. And if properly applied, it is very, very useful. I'm angry at them in large measure because they didn't understand that there was a line that if they crossed it, it was going to ruin their Bayesian analysis. And I think the effective altruism movement did not understand that it was saying something painfully naive in trying to take rationalism into a uh, an operationalizable um, position. In other mm-hmm. words, I you know I want the philosophers to tell us how to think about stuff. I don't want um, that. I don't want an army of philosophers remaking society. I want once we know uh, how things should be understood, then we others are probably better at figuring out what to do about it. Um, but in any case. And frankly, the uh, absurdity of the way the rationalists uh, screwed up COVID despite a tremendous amount of evidence that they should have processed properly mm-hmm. is uh, a stunning failure. Yep. Um, <clears throat> you know, hopefully they will, uh, instead of doubling down, they will wise up and recover from that. But in any case, um, so I wanted to point to the question of when should something like silence actually alter what you think is likely going on. And I was spurred to think about this because of a, uh, a happy accident, a confluence of a couple of things that happened close together in time um, that I know to have been unrelated because I was involved in one of them. So uh, many of the viewers of this live stream will have seen the episode that I did with Jeremy Riss and Michael Shermer. Um, And that is an episode that's very good because we all agree on the objective of of analytic work being discovering what is true, and we have arrived at different conclusions about what might be true. And um, anyway, it's an interesting discussion. I strongly recommend people um, watch it. Zach, do you have a clip? I want to show a clip from a particular segment in which... For longtime viewers of the podcast, you will have heard me describe a mechanism that I claim makes any mRNA platform vaccine dangerous because it um, will induce cells to produce a foreign antigen, which cannot help but trigger the immune system to react to those cells as if they are infected by a virus, which they are not, and destroy them, which will then do damage to whatever organ was doing the translating of that protein. Okay, so here is my exchange after having so, explained that. If my- the vaccine, the so-called vaccine, stayed in your deltoid when they injected it, then the answer is, well, the cells that will be attacked by your immune system are in your arm and you can afford to lose them. Once we knew that the vaccine circulated around the body, it should be clear to anyone who understands how immunity develops that this is going to cause an autoimmune disorder in any tissue that transcribes it. And if that tissue happens to be your heart, it's gonna be a devastating problem. So 
How Paul Offit doesn't know that? I think Paul Offit has to know that. How did the well, other people who signed okay, off on this but, not know but, it? But, but, I Brett, don't know. He's not here. I don't. I don't even know what you're talking about. So I can, you know, you you float this hypothesis. Jeremy and I are we don't. This is not what we do. So I don't even know how to, you know, how is it possible? Not just Paul Offit. You know, this it's like thousands of scientists would have okay. to be either just delusional or bought off or perfect. Perfect. So here's what we've got. You can't evaluate what I said, nor should you be able to. You're not a biologist. Here's what you can know, though. I have just staked my reputation on a claim about how the immune system works and how the vaccine, as described by those who designed it, should work. If I'm wrong, you, Michael Shermer, are sitting here and there should be a flood of biologists ready to explain what I've got wrong. And when that flood of biologists doesn't show up, you should ask yourself the question, why is that? If did Paul Offit is right and Brett Weinstein is wrong, why is nobody pointing out the reason? Well, uh, did you invite them on your show to talk about it? I mean, I doesn't what? matter. You, you can invite them. I'll invite them. Show me who knows the answer to the question. Okay. And I, I'll be happy to talk. <laughs> Maybe I'll host an episode of the Michael Shermer Great. show with you and whoever. I'll no, I, 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 I would love that. If you so, want to, if you want to bring who, Paul off it on. Who's the guy that uh, Rogan wanted to have back Hotez? on? Oh, Peter, Peter Hotez. Yeah, maybe Peter somebody Hotez. like yeah. All right. So philosophically, I think this is an interesting predicament because Michael is having the correct reaction. What you, Brett, are saying can't possibly be right, that there is an obvious reason based on simple immunobiology that invalidates the mRNA platform because it will trigger an autoimmune disorder. If that were true, surely other people would know about it. We wouldn't be deploying these things, much less continuing to re-up boosters and planning to put other vaccines that weren't mRNA-based onto the mRNA platform. That seems shocking to him that such a thing could possibly be true. Therefore, the most There's likely... There's a level at which a fringe belief doesn't warrant being taken seriously because it's too fringe. It's too far outside. There's too few people saying it. I, I don't have time to deal with all the fringe stuff that comes my way. Not this one, not this time. No, thank you, Brett. Right. So as a non-expert, his conclusion is that just doesn't sound like that could be right because if that were true, what else would that imply? Mm -hmm. And my point is, well, strange as it may sound, Michael, that is exactly what's going on here. It's not the first time that I've described this mechanism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he asked me, he says, uh, what do people say in response? And I said, I've never heard a credible response. Right. Now, that may sound even more incredible to him. What are the chances that there's not, even if it's wrong, that there isn't something that people say? Well, but that, that question is exactly the right one. What do people say in response? And when the answer that comes back, and this is not your first rodeo on this yep. one, uh, when the answer that comes back is, I can't get a response. Mm -hmm. Now, again, there will be some cases where people are talking such craziness that they just don't warrant a response, right? And it can be hard for a non-expert who doesn't feel like they can assess the evidence to tell the difference. But when you have, it's not just you and me making these arguments. You're, you, you are specifically making a very precise argument here. Um, but writ large, there are a lot of people who are arguing that the mRNA platform is actually the opposite of safe and effective, yep. right? Or the opposite of safe. And you're not just one guy. 
even if you were just one guy, you have a track record that is proven. Uh, and therefore should be given a little bit more credibility going into the question. Even more than that, I yeah. would say. You and I were constantly berated during COVID for the fact that with the platform that we had, that our speaking about the dangers of the vaccines was irresponsible because people might believe us, and if they did, it might put them in harm's way. So whatever else might be true, the fact that we have a platform that you're willing to tell us that we have an obligation to shut up because people might listen, if I'm saying nonsense about the nature of the immunobiology here, then somebody should come and say, politely, perhaps, this is not true, and here is why. And the fact that that message never comes tells you something. And in fact, yeah. I'm reminded... No, and it's, it's such a precise scientific argument. It wouldn't take much for anyone to dismantle if it was dismantleable. Right, right. And so I was reminded that uh, many years ago, Ralph Nader came to Evergreen, and I had not been able to reach him. I wanted to talk to him about the telomere work and mm -hmm. the implications for the mice because I thought it was right up his alley. And I uh, tracked him down backstage. Of course, you did. of course I did. I tracked him down backstage and I mm -hmm. said, Mr. Nader, I have a story I want to tell you. I've wanted to tell it to you for a long time. And he said, okay. And I did my best 12-minute version of the story. And he asked me one question. He said, was the response that you got back dismissal or silence? And I said, it was mostly science. And he says, okay, that's how I know your story is probably right. Hmm. Because that's how they do it. So anyway... Interesting anecdote that he would have seen that. But here's here's my it's important. point. Yeah, it's it's an important, important. an important situation. Um but here's what I did not realize. I think I recorded that podcast on the twenty eighth. With Michael and with and Michael Jeremy. And, and Jeremy Riss. And what I only found out yesterday is that um John Campbell had done another in his series of podcasts one day prior. Okay. And in that, he describes the exact mechanism that I have been describing. He describes it, I think it's almost identical, except that he uses the term lymphocyte, whereas I, he says cytotoxic, and I say uh, killer T cell and natural killer cell. But the mechanism he describes is unmistakably the same mechanism. Am I right? We cannot show it, Zach? No. Okay. But interestingly, not only does he go through the same line of logic for what must be true if the uh, mRNA vaccines do not stay in the deltoid, as we know that they do not, <clears throat> where he says, look, they, you know, the lipids on the surface of the cells will have a chemical affinity for lipid nanoparticles, which means that any cell that these things encounter can take them up and can translate them into protein, at which point the immune system will attack the cell and destroy it. If that happens in your heart, that would be myocarditis, exactly the argument I've laid out. And he says, he reaches the same conclusion. He says, not only is this a devastating danger for these vaccines, but it will be a devastating danger for any mRNA platform vaccine, which is what I have also been saying. So what I'm thinking is now, you know, I, I didn't know that John Campbell was going to do an episode on this, but now Michael Shermer has another data point 
where not only am I saying things that he can't check, but if they're true, suggest a campaign of silence over an obvious design flaw of the mRNA vaccines, but now he's got John Campbell independently saying the identical thing. So now Michael should start to think, what would have to be true that nobody is telling these two guys that they've got it wrong? Okay, now, you know, let's add uh, Peter McCullough to the list because Peter McCullough has made a similar argument. What would have to be true for nobody to be telling Peter McCullough that he's got it wrong? Okay, we can add Mark Girardot to that list. Why is nobody telling him that he's got it wrong? Um, Andrew Wakefield, why is nobody... So at some point, you've got enough people coming from enough different places spotting the same design flaw that, frankly clearly implies no vaccine should be put on this platform until a targeting mechanism is designed, and that could be decades away. Yeah, something that Mm -hmm. is capable of targeting a tissue that you can afford to lose. Um, Well, and I, you know, I will, I would love to talk to John Campbell about this, because he says a couple of things in his description where he and I might slightly differ about the implications. Mm -hmm. Um, And anyway, it would be great to talk that out. Uh, a live virus vaccine has this defect, but it does have targeting because you're using a live virus. It's not going to go into every tissue. The virus comes pre-targeted. Right. The virus is pre-targeted. And so the point is you could get a cost-benefit analysis that makes that a viable platform, whereas there is no rescuing this platform until you have a targeting mechanism. And I have not heard thing one about how you would target it. What's more, they just vaccinated billions of people with one that wasn't targeted. And lo and behold, myocarditis showed up and nobody can figure it. I mean, in fact, John Campbell's video was in response to Pfizer having been asked if they knew why it caused myocarditis uh, by the Australian uh, Congress, and they failed in real time to say anything coherent. They just spouted boilerplate nonsense, and at the end of their boilerplate nonsense, they promised to look into the matter and get back to them with an answer to the question, and John Campbell goes through the answer, and there's no answer in it, shockingly enough. So the question is, does Pfizer know what the rest of us know, and it's deploying these things anyway, or does it somehow not know, in which case, how did it miss something so basic? This I don't know. Yeah. So what we need is philosophers to grab some people by the lapels and get them to respond to the evidence the way they should. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to to bring it, full circle to where you started um there needs to be uh like a, a system of keeping track of actually i made this claim and if it is wrong you should want me to know that i want to know it this is of importance in this particular case the entire world and it would be easy to dismantle if it's not true so the next time this comes up, the response can't once again be, but that can't be the case. Lots of credential people don't think that's the case. The answer, like every time it comes up and you want to respond with, but look at how many people think you're wrong. You have, people have to start keeping track. And this is, I think, where you're arguing the philosophy comes in. Like you have to start keeping track. Like, but if there are so many people who believe I'm wrong and actually believe that from first principles as opposed to they've been told to believe that by God Pfizer or whatever, then tell me how I'm wrong. 
So, and, and you know, the, the, I, it feels like the failure to respond is almost like this extraordinarily juvenile woke move of like, it's not my job to educate you. I'm so exhausted. Like, I can't do it. You know what? It's science. And it's your obligation um, to actually come up with an explanation for why your damn product is causing these grievous um, problems in people. And there is a plausible hypothesis on the table that no one is attempting to falsify. That is what science does. It attempts to falsify hypotheses. Here it is. All of those people who think that uh, Pfizer knows what it's doing and the platform is great, respond to this. It's your obligation to respond to this. It's your obligation to respond. And when you don't, the natural conclusion, you've got a, an empirical observation of a kind of damage that is dire, You've got young, healthy people having damage to their hearts, damage to their hearts that in many of their cases compromises them in the short term. In many of the other cases, we should expect it to compromise them in the long term. That, if this was an honest system in any regard, if Pfizer, for example, was a company that was actually interested in improving human health, then its discovery that there might be something wrong with its product that was causing young people who had a long life ahead of them not to have a long life ahead of them, that would cause it to be very interested in this question. Mm -hmm. And when you discover that it is not at all interested, that not only can it not be asked in real time by uh, Australians to explain how myocarditis is being produced, but even when it submits a written response later, it's completely empty. A total disinterest in answering that question says, at the very least, that this company is indifferent to the deaths that it is causing. It may be that it thinks there's a cost-benefit analysis in which it thinks it's saving more people than it's hurting, but if you were saving more people than you were hurting, you wouldn't be indifferent to the ones you were hurting. Mm -hmm. And especially when there's an age stratification right. to be done right. that would save most of those young people. Yep. So the fact that it doesn't respond in the way that a normal person would at discovering something surprising suggests that maybe it's not surprised at all. Maybe it knew this and it's just fine with it. I think that's right. All right. I think we've arrived. And I think we are there. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then we'll be back with a Q&A on, uh, on Rumble only, right? Yep. Uh, and the chat uh, will be, the, the watch party will be on Locals only. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And, of course, you can find us all sorts of other places as well. But we would really love to direct you to Rumble and to Locals, where, again, we've got watch parties for our live streams. We're releasing guest episodes a day early on Locals. We've got our monthly private Q&A on Locals now, and Discord is coming soon. Um, so please, please join us there. And Brett's begun doing some um, spur-of-the-moment AMAs on Locals. Uh, we're both going to become active there. Uh, so please, please join us there. And um, come find me at Natural Selections, naturalselections.substack.com, where I write weekly. Uh, about all manner of things and uh, you can find <clears throat> cool gear at our store at uh, darkhorsestore.org and um, once again our sponsors this week are Soul Biome and Mudwater check them out we are supported by you so we thank you for your support for sharing for subscribing for liking and for liking uh, clips and full episodes and uh, we look forward to uh, having you with us next week. Until then, until we see you next 
Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>